The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How's everybody doing this morning? Nice. Sam, you got them woke up for me, man. Hey, I have a couple announcements for you, but you could, if you will, turn to Galatians chapter 2. And while we're doing that, I have a couple of announcements for you. Um, First of all, um, Lord willing, I'll be back with you next weekend. On Thursday, I have to head to Portland for a couple of days. Um, Some of you guys know I'm I'm studying at Western Seminary right now. And uh, so I'll be spending a couple of days up there and kind of depending on how that goes and when I get back and all that stuff, we'll see how that plays out. But Lord willing, I'll be back with us next weekend here in Galatians. But the next weekend, I cannot urge you enough to be a part of what we're going to be doing here, February 20th and 21st. Um, It's going to be Friday evening for a couple hours, and then Saturday morning up till around noon or one, somewhere in there, I can't remember. But um, Professor Todd Miles, he's a a doctor, philosopher, former engineer, because you know that's where the holy people come from. But anyway, uh, no, I'm just so joking. But no, um, he um, is the theology professor, or one of the theology professors at Western Seminary, and frankly, he's been my favorite teacher that I've been, since I've been working up there, um, that I've sat under. He is brilliant and just incredibly gifted as a teacher and insight into scripture. And so Todd Miles is coming down next weekend, Friday night and Saturday morning, he's going to be doing a workshop with us on how to read and interpret scripture. And some of the stuff he's going to share with you literally will revolutionize the way that you read the scripture. So I cannot urge you enough. Oh, by the way, while I'm doing this, if you don't have a Bible today, stick your hand up nice and high. There's some nice gentlemen with Bibles there. They'll make sure that you get one for today. If you don't have one, that is a gift to you. We pray it'll bless you and just help lead you into closer relationship with Jesus. So anyway, next weekend, that workshop with Professor Todd Miles will be on Friday night and Saturday morning. It is completely free, and we're going to pack that thing out, man. It's going to be right over here at the Hub, and it's going to be a great time. We're going to pack that place out, um, but we do need you to sign up. Is that working, by the way, sign up? Sir? They are up and Okay, apparently there was a problem last week, but this week we got it fixed, and so next weekend we do need you to sign up just so that we can um, be able to prepare, and, and, but honestly, even if you can't pull that off, just come. Even if you, if you can only come Saturday and you can't come Friday, whatever, I assure you it will be a huge blessing to you. So make sure you're a part of that. And then it appears that, unless things change, um, Professor Miles will actually be preaching here on Sunday morning as well, um, which I'm excited about. Not only is he an amazing teacher, but for me it's important because it's an opportunity for you to get to know, frankly, someone who has a pretty major uh, impact and, and, and voice into my life as well. I think that's healthy for the church to know who speaking things into your pastor, amen? So, um, so he'll be here then, so I urge you to get involved with that. It's going to be fantastic. Um, and by the way, if you're thinking, oh, it's seminary professor, he's going to be over my head, no, 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 no. You will be blessed. Just come. Be a part of that. Um, and then also, men. Can I get an amen, men? Amen. March 6th through the 8th, we're going to man camp. Um, me and Jeremy Neff are going to take, take a group of men to Washington Family Ranch just past Ben in Easter, Oregon. And uh, it's going to be a phenomenal weekend getting together with the other Acts 29 Northwest Network churches. There's going to be groups from Washington and all over coming together. And uh, one of the great Acts 29 national speakers, John Bryson, is coming from Memphis, Tennessee to share the word with us that weekend. And we're being joined, I, I, I don't know the show myself, but apparently it's kind of a hit on Discovery channel called Gold Rush. You guys know that show? So the Turin family, I don't know who they are, but apparently they're 
gold rushers, I guess. So anyway, they are going to actually be part of that as well. They're going to be there with us at camp. And if you've never been to Washington Family Ranch, let me tell you, man, like go-karts, mountain biking, like a quarter mile zip line down into the lake, even in March. I mean, it's going to be an amazing time. So please don't miss out on this. Um, would love to have you guys, if for no other reason, just fellowshipping and getting to know one another as we make our way um, up to Eastern Oregon. So that is March 6th through the 8th. Cost is 140 bucks, and it includes everything, transportation, meals, all of that kind of stuff. I think all you have to pay is like a road meal on the way. So um, make sure you get involved. It's going to be a great, great weekend. And then finally, I have some slides I want to show you guys, if we can see them here, um, that uh, as you guys know, we at the end of the year, just hang on on that one before you start if you would, at the end of the year, uh, last year, we talked about the fact that we have a sister church in Uganda. It's Oasis of Hope Church that we've had a relationship with, well, I've had a relationship with their pastor since 2007, and we've worked with them a lot. I think I've been there now like five times in six years. Um, we work with them very closely, and they had been renting a facility that year in and year out keeps threatening to kick them out. It's a more urban area of Uganda where property is expensive and hard to come by, and they just were constantly facing challenges. And so at the end of last year, you guys may remember we did that sort of love offering for a couple of weeks. We raised up some money, and we were able to collect enough money to not only buy property for them, but to get construction of their new church up and running. And I wanted to be able to share with you guys a report of what's been going on just in the last month. This is Pastor John with his new granddaughter. That's Pastor John Wabwire. And uh, we're actually looking at the possibility of bringing him here if we can work out the visa stuff this year, which I think you guys can't even imagine what it'd be like for him to preach here. Like, it would blow your mind. It's just crazy. But, um, so anyway, this is Pastor John. You can scroll through them now from here on out. Um, here's Pastor John teaching at a uh, revival conference nearby, preaching the gospel to people. And this is the property that we were able to purchase for them there in Imbarara, Uganda, down in southwestern corner of Uganda. And uh, that's where they were just sort of surveying it out, scoping it out. It's completely undeveloped, but already got going on foundations there in, in the project. You might have to go a little bit faster. Probably there's a whole bunch of these. Um, walls are already going up. And even since we started this, others of you have brought more donations in that we're not only going to be able to have like just this temporary facility, if you will, but they're actually kind of going to be able to start investing in this. Um, and then in the year or so to come, the property next door to them is also available. And our hope is to eventually be able to buy that as well and help them get that school started there. As you guys know, we support orphans through our church um, to go to school and, and help them with their education, kids that are underprivileged and wouldn't have that opportunity anyway, but we're sending all these kids to all these different schools, and it gets expensive, and we just got to the point where we're like, maybe the better thing to do would just start a school. Let's just hire a teacher and keep them all there, and then we could even take care of way more kids that way, and so that's our goal, and that's our desire, but as you guys can see, this is Oasis of Herb Church, and they're almost to the point where they can put the roof on, so that's really good news. Amen? Yeah. Clap for that. Amen. Amen. And let me tell you, the guys there in Uganda are incredible. They're just going nuts. It's like a revival over there. Like, we have a home. We have a home. They're so excited. So thank you so much from them and from, from me on behalf of my friends, too, for supporting the work there in Uganda. Thank you for that. All right. Now let's get into Galatians chapter 2. And let's push ahead here. I, I have to say, we're only going to cover four verses, but I'm going to talk a lot. <clears throat> and, and let me say this too. Um, can you give me an amen if you would say, I am part of the Heritage family? If you're a visitor, we love having you here. But if you're like, the, you're like, this is home. Can I get an amen from you? Amen. 
Okay, so heritage people, listen up. I want you to pay particular attention to what we're going to be talking about today. This is a particularly important thing for us to consider regarding even just the overall health of our church and witness to people outside of our church. It's an important message. Applies to everyone, but heritage, if you see a heritage person that just said amen and they're dozing off, give them one of those, okay? All right. So let's read through verses 11 through 14. I'll pray, and then we'll start doing some dissection. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and ask you for your grace at this time. Lord, the word tells us that these things are spiritually understood. And so unless a work of your Holy Spirit happens in this room right now, Lord, we profit nothing. The wisdom of men will get us nowhere. My ideas will take us even less far. But God, your wisdom has withstood the test of time throughout all of the ages. God, your words give us life. Where else can we go? You alone have those words of life. So God, we ask that your spirit would move in this place, even talking through such as me, Lord, and that you would open the eyes of our heart, soul, and mind to see you and your truth and your will for our lives. We ask, God, that we would be humbled under your word, not seeking to lord over it. And I ask, God, that you would even protect your congregation from the likes of me. Lord, that the words that may just be wisdom of men and not reflective of your heart or your will for your church, may they not be forgot or not be remembered, Lord, but words that are of you, your words of life, Lord, may they produce great fruit in our lives. And may your gospel transform us again. So, Lord, as we say often, and as your scripture declares, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, guys, so we're working our way through the book of Galatians. Um, I hope that you're enjoying the book of Galatians so far. I know I am. I have been looking forward to teaching this book for a long, long time. Um, the things that are in this book bring such freedom and relief and just the ability to breathe. It's a fantastic, fantastic passage, and it profits the church greatly to understand these things. Last week, we spent some time looking at two arguments that tend to come against the gospel of grace as it is given to us in Scripture. There's two typical arguments that tend to come against, if you will, the scripture that says, if you teach grace the way Paul teaches grace, apart from law, apart from works, there's problems with that. One of the problems, as we've talked about last week, is an argument from religion or from tradition. And it says this, look, God is a holy and perfect God and he wrote these things. He wrote them with his hands. The law is perfect and holy and now, after thousands of years of this is how we live, now you're going to just take the law and throw it away and say that doesn't apply to us anymore? Now we're on this new path? How can you do it? You can't just dismiss what God has given and is perfect. The other argument is one of morality. And it says, 
if you teach the gospel apart from law, apart from works, people will never change. In fact, more, even worse, what they'll end up doing is using this free grace as license to do whatever they want. They'll say, you mean I'm forgiven? That my works have nothing to do with my standing before God? He approves of me no matter what I do? Well, great, then I'll do what I want. And so we looked at those and we tried to make some sense last week and we'll push even further this week on understanding what role does the law play? Because if you ask of something more than it's designed to do, it's not going to work out. I used to have this little Subaru car that I used to pull my, my boat up to the lake and I used to just, you know, snowboarding trips, all these things. And at a certain point, that car was too old and it was not designed to have a full towing package on it, pulling boats around this little four-cylinder Subaru. And it got to the point where my mechanic finally told me one day, Jeff, not going to work on your car anymore. He said, it is time to get something that's designed to do what you want it to do. And when you push things to do something they're not designed to do, they're going to break and they're going to leave you disappointed as my car did to me. So with regards to the law, what is the law designed to do? What role is it supposed to play? And this is what we said last week and this is important to remember and I've gotten feedback from you that said this resonated, so let's consider this again. That the law has every right because it is written by the holy and perfect hand of God, the law has every right to tell us this is how you are to live. Do this, don't do this. It's written by God. We are under his authority. It's his perfect hand. It's, it's stood the test of time. It has every right to say that to us. But the law has zero ability, zero power to deal with our failures when we don't live up to that. And the analogy we use for that is that the law is a diagnostic. So if you take your car, when I took my Subaru to the mechanic and it kept breaking down, they ran a diagnostic on it. They plugged the car into a computer, ran a program, and that diagnostic is designed to scan through the car and it comes back with a report. And the report is, this is what's wrong with your car. The fuel system's bad or the whatever the thing is, your carburetor is broken. Scott, do the cars still have carburetors? Not many. Okay, something else is, what, something's broken. I don't know. That's why we have Scott. But, um, but, but this, is what he's, this is what he's saying. Like, that you run this diagnostic and this scan tells you what's wrong with your car. That's the law. We read the law and it shows us this is how we're to live, which means we're also aware this isn't how we're living. It becomes sort of this diagnostic to show us that we are broken, that we are sinful, that we are fallen. That we are liars and thieves and all of those sorts of things. It shows us what's wrong with us. But the thing we have to remember is, no matter how many times you run that diagnostic scan on your car, it can show you what's broken, but it will never fix the problem. Over and over, it just says the same thing. You're broken. You're broken. You're broken. You're broken. You're broken. And that's what happens with us with regards to law so often. We keep going back to the law. We keep going back to analyze our own performance to to try to measure out these scales and how we're doing as Christians. And, And do we have God's favor? Well, let's run the diagnostic. What does my week look like? And listen, it doesn't matter how many times you run that scan. It only says the same thing. It has nothing new to say to you. It just keeps saying, you're broken, 
You're broken. You're broken. You're fallen. You're not perfect. You are not keeping this law. You are far from the glory of God. And it says the same thing over and over and over. And one of the reasons many of us struggle in seasons of our life with joy is because we just keep running back to that diagnostic, expecting it to fix something, and it's only going to say the same thing. And so we're condemned constantly by ourselves because we keep doing this instead of running and clinging to the one who heals. To go to Jesus, to cling to him, the one who is our savior, our healer, our great physician, and to put our trust in his righteousness, to go, the diagnostic's right. I am fallen and I am broken, but my standing before God is based on what Christ has done for me and on Christ's perfect, sinless life. And so now when I'm in Christ, when God looks at me, that diagnostic, if you will, it's, it's as if it's, it's, that cable's not plugged into me, that cable's plugged into him. You know the scriptures, it says that our sin has been cast to the bottom of the sea. You've seen Nemo, right? Remember when Nemo goes deep? It's kind of dark down there, right? You can't see, that's the point. When, God, when you are in Christ and God looks at you, the diagnostic is run on Christ. And it comes back perfect, holy, spotless, unblemished, forgiven. And so when our faith is in him and we are in Christ, he becomes our diagnostic. So to the degree that we learn to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over and stop running back to that old way of living is to the degree that we will experience increasing joy in our lives. Amen? That should have been an amen right there. All right, well, let's move on. So what do we do with the law then? Here's the question. Okay, so if if we do that with the law, if we're asking the law to do something for us that it cannot do, if we're asking our performance to give us joy in our life when all it's going to do is show us condemnation, then, then what do we do with the law? As a believer, what role does the law have in our life? Should we just get rid of it? Should we just teach New Testament only from now on and just forget the Old Testament altogether? What, what is it that we do with that? And then even more so today, we're going to answer that question today to some degree, and also today we're going to look at the role of hypocrisy in the Christian. So when you are in Christ, but you're living in such a way um, that, that clashes with who you are, pretending to be something that you're not, and this is a really important word for the church. So with that in mind, let's look right away at verses 11 and 12 here in our text. It says... When Cephas came to Antioch, and let me give you just a quick background on Antioch. Um, Antioch is in uh, modern-day Turkey, Syria at that time, and Antioch is a really, uh, um, for that day, modern, wealthy, um, just an incredible city. Big theater, libraries, things that to us we would take for granted today, but in that day and age, big deal if your city had that kind of stuff. Very metropolitan, a lot of wealth, and it was very diverse, in fact, historians will tell us that the, the divide, if you will, in, excuse me, in Antioch between Jew and Gentile, which Gentile means not Jew, so between the Jews and those who are not Jews was about 50-50, which is tremendous for an area outside of Israel. But one of the reasons that was the case is because when Stephen was martyred, and murdered, it, we, we read about it in the book of Acts, when Stephen was martyred, all these, this group of persecuted Jewish Christians, Jews in Israel became Christians, Stephen got martyred and persecution came, and a big group of these persecuted Christians fled Israel, fled Jerusalem, and found safety and refuge in Antioch. 
So Antioch became a real hub of Christianity in the early church, incredibly important city. Missionaries launched from Antioch. Churches were planted out of Antioch. It was a really important city. And so the scripture tells us here in verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him, this is Paul writing, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So this is what happened. Here, what's the issue that Paul is opposing Peter on? What's the big deal here? So Paul goes into Antioch. He gets this church started. Now he's going and launching churches in all these different areas. And the church is growing. And, and in that time, the church is just flourishing with one another, Jew and Gentile alike. So we got completely different people, and a Jew in that day wouldn't have normally had anything to do with a Gentile person, but here in the church, they're having meals together, they're fellowshipping with one another, they're living in such a way that it shows the reality of the equality that is available to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're just, everybody's cool and hanging out, and it's just going really well. And Peter came in, and there's leaders there, it's just an incredible situation that's going on, it's all going really well. And then Paul leaves. Paul goes somewhere, mission trip, does something. And when he comes back, everything's changed. Now the church is completely segregated. The, these guys that were in fellowship with one another and not looking down their noses and just enjoying one another's company, now they're, they're not together because apparently this group that it says came from James, came in, saw them, the way they're interacting with one another, and said, what are you doing you're Jews, Christian or not, you're Jews. You should not be fellowshipping like this with these guys. These are uncircumcised Gentiles. And frankly, we don't even know if they're saved. Because how can you be saved if you're not living according to the Jewish law, which includes the circumcision and the cleansing rituals and all of that? And you, you're having these non-kosher meals with them? What are you doing? This is wrong. And everyone listened. And so the church completely segregates, and Paul comes back to find that this has happened and finds that even Peter himself is no longer eating with the Gentile people that he did. He's doing the same thing. He's only eating with the Jewish people there, and he's completely shut off these Gentile people that he had relationships with before. Now, some of this problem, even though we understand segregation, right? Because this is what's going on. It's almost a racial type issue here. And we do understand segregation because segregation is a part of, unfortunately, um, our, our, our U.S. history, our, our culture not that long ago. I mean, there, there's people in this room that grew up and went to high schools in areas where there were water fountains that said white here and black here. My father was one of them. I've seen the photos of the school that he went to. So segregation wasn't that long ago, and frankly, I don't know if you've traveled around very much, but if you've been to different areas, you'll see some of it to some degree or another, whether legalized or not, still exists. So we understand segregation, but what's all this about meals? Like, they, it's not just segregation, like they're pushing hard on this fact that people are eating together. Like, what's, why are we so worked up about these meals? Well, the, the reason is our culture is not a culinary culture. Like, we don't get this in the same way. Um, we are more the fast food culture. That's what we are. We don't put near the emphasis on meals and meal time, especially in our current day, um, that they did in that culture. For us, we're like, you mean I can get a burrito at Taco Bell, and I don't even have to order chips on the side because it's got chips inside the burrito, and you'll give it to me in my car, and it's only $1.50? 
I'll take five. I mean, that's our culture. Drive through, please, and it better be ready. Like, we want fast. You can go to a fast food restaurant here in town. I won't say its name, but it rhymes with Barl's Jr. And um, you can go to that place, and you can buy a burger for breakfast that has egg, bacon, burger, and hash brown on it. And it'll be ready and in your car. Now, I would recommend going to one somewhere near the hospital if you order that burger, just for safety's sake. But that, that's the culture that we live in. Meals are fast. We want, when we go to restaurants, we want service quick, and we will encourage, we'll, we'll praise restaurants that get our food to us quick. I mean, that, that's more or less the culture that we live in now. That's not the culture that they lived in then. There, this was very much a culinary culture in the sense that meals were planned, and they were long, and they were intentional, and there was something in them that made a social statement. So when we went to Israel in May last year, we went to this thing, it's called Abraham's Tent. And you go to this one area, everybody hops on a camel, and you ride a camel, the most uncomfortable, smelly thing in the world, all the way down to this other area, and there's this tent set up, and they have actors and everything that present to you what it would have been like to come to Abraham's home and have a meal. And so you're laying on your side, and the tables are low to the ground, you're just, and it's long. It's long. They like bring you one thing, and you hang out. And then they bring you another thing and you hang out and you're, you're on the floor, there's no chair. You're like, man, this is miserable. And the guy who played Abraham comes, I mean, it's not miserable. The food was amazing. You're just uncomfortable. And the food, the, the, the guy who played Abraham, he was mocking us. Like he came in and he was like, you Americans, you're always in such a hurry. Meals here are about fellowship with one another. Relax, take your time. And it took like forever to eat this meal there, Right? That's the way that culture was. Like you, you spent a giant chunk of time together, eating together, fellowshipping together, and it, it's not just a meal. It's a sh- uh, kind of a, a social statement of equality, of love, of acceptance. It was a big deal in that culture. I mean, think about it this way. Consider Jesus Christ. What was one of the big controversies, one of the big criticisms he got from the religious people in his day? They would say, look at this man. He receives sinners and eats with them. Well, you you think, what's the big deal? So what? He eats with them. No, but that was a social statement at that time. And they were at that time where we don't have anything to do with the Gentiles we separate from, but look at him. He's like sharing a meal. So it's not just being friends with them, but there's this show of of love and of, of camaraderie and of fellowship with them. There was a social statement involved even in the meals that Jesus was having with them. So it was a big deal. And so here you've got Peter. He's willing to sit down with the Gentiles and have a meal. And then these men from James come in. Now, Acts 15, if you want to go read it later, um, is going to prove to us or show to us that those men really didn't come from James. They're going to write a letter and it's going to say, we understand that some people came amongst you to stir up trouble, stir up problems. They did not come under our authority. So this whole thing at this particular point is a fraud, okay? But at that time, they didn't have Wikipedia, so they don't know. So they're all here together. These guys are there from James and they're coming in and they're like, Peter, what are you doing? You're, you're a Jew, Christian or not, you're a Jew. And these people, are you serious? Come on. And everybody buys in. And they segregate and they separate from one another. And so Peter's no longer having meals with any of those people anymore. Now, Peter, listen, if anyone, if 
anyone on the face of the earth at that time should have known better than to do that, it's Peter. Peter, more than anyone, should have known what was going on. Because in the Bible, in Acts chapter 10, there's this story many of you are familiar with regarding Peter that deals with this very issue. There's, it tells the story of a man named Cornelius. He's a, he's a Gentile man, and, and God comes to him in this dream, in this vision, and tells him, you're to send men to Joppa. Peter's over there. He's having a dream. Go get him. Bring him to you. So he dispatches men. Go to Joppa. Go find Peter. Meanwhile, Peter in Joppa has this vision of this huge sheet that comes down from the sky, and inside it are these animals that he refers to as common animals, which means what? Unclean. Can't eat these. These are not allowed to be eaten according to Jewish law. But then Jesus speaks to him. If you have that in Acts chapter 10 in a red letter Bible, it should be in red. It says that this voice comes to him and says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And all the hunters said, amen. So Jesus says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter, in classic Peter form, argues, what? I know. Those, those animals are unclean, Lord. I can't eat those. And Jesus responds to him, what I have called clean, let no man call unclean. And then it happens again. Vision, go, kill, eat. Lord, no. Eat. What I call clean, don't call unclean. And then it happens again, three times. There's something with Peter in threes, right? Deny three times, all those things. There's going to be another one in a minute we'll look at. There's something with threes in Peter, but, but the, it's emphasized. So Peter comes out of this dream, comes out of this vision, and he's going, what in the world is that all about? And then all of a sudden there's a knock at the door. Hey, uh, we got sent. This guy Cornelius wants to see you. Something about a dream. And so they bring Peter back to Cornelius. And Cornelius and Peter are there together. And they're talking, just trying to figure out what does this whole thing mean? What is going on here? And as Peter starts to talk to them and starts to interact with them, finally he just goes for it. And he does something that was completely unprecedented. He starts preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Now, this was a much simpler time in the church at this point. All the believers are Jewish. So these issues between the idea of tension and should a Gentile be a part and are we supposed to eat together, it wasn't even on the radar. And so Peter just starts preaching the gospel to these guys. And look what happens. And we've got the text, if you'll put it up. In Acts chapter 10, verse 44, it says this. And while Peter was still saying these things, so he's preaching the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then asked, they asked him to remain for some days. So Jesus preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes down. They're prophesying. They're speaking in tongues. And Peter's amazed. He's like, this is the same thing that happened to us. God has poured his blessing on the Gentiles just like us. Well, then why wouldn't we baptize them? And so they baptize these guys, and it's this whole thing. Now, watch what happens next. That's the end of chapter 10. The very next verse is the beginning of chapter 11. If you'll put that up. It says, now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, or in other words, the Jewish Christians there, criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and what? And ate with them. It's like, 
Peter, what are you doing? You preach the gospel to Gentiles and just baptize them? And then you're sharing meals with them? Do you understand the message you're giving them? What are you doing? Well, as that text goes on, Peter addresses their doubts and fears by giving them, I'll give you the paraphrased version of this. He says, hey, dummies, listen, the Holy Spirit came on them just like us. So you're saying God chose them to plant his spirit in, but I can't put a taco in them. Is that what you're telling me? That's my paraphrase. That's not the ESV version that we normally read in case some of you are King James only people. But, but that is what it says. And so they're all worked up about the fact that this Holy Spirit has been poured out. Peter preached the gospel. Now he's sharing meals with them. And Peter's just like, look, man, take it up with God. God poured his spirit out on them. They're equal with us. Now, listen. Quick paraphrase, or paragraph, or parentheses. That's the word right here. Quick parentheses. Do not fall into the lie or the falsehood that, that makes you think, okay, God was anti-Gentile for a long, long time, and then the Holy Spirit came and the resurrection and all that, and so God changed his mind, and now God is pro-Gentile. That is not true. That is supremely unbiblical. God was never, listen to me, God has never, ever, ever been anti-Gentile. You understand? And this is important to know because there's people even in our culture today that are using this kind of argument with regarding even things such as gay marriage and stuff like that as well. That there were things that applied then and then God changed and now all these things are okay. But you need to understand that's not true. Now you go, but wait, but Israel was the chosen family, the chosen nation, the chosen people. You're right. Why? Why did he choose them? He chose them by grace. So, so Abraham is the father of the family that's chosen. When God selects Israel, he does it through Abraham. And what does he say? He says, I will bless all nations through you, and I will curse those who curse you. In other words, he says to Abraham, listen, man, I'm choosing you, and you and the nation of family that's going to follow you are going to be the vessel through which I reveal my grace and my love and my glory to the entire world. It was never that God chose Israel and left everyone out for a really long time, and then God got nice around the New Testament, he wasn't grumpy anymore, and then he started including everyone else. That is not true. And this is important because Israel thinks that. See, for Israel, they've forgotten why they were chosen in the first place. Abraham, why was he chosen? Was he like nailing it religiously? No. He was a pagan moon worshiper in a foreign land. He was not even slightly worshiping God. God chose him for one reason, because he chose him. God showed favor on Abraham. Abraham didn't earn it. He received favor. And what Israel forgot is Israel went from we have received the favor of God to we are the favorites of God. And that was a fatal mistake for them. That was a fatal mistake. God forbid, Heritage, that we ever get to that place where we look down our noses at everyone else as the privileged, chosen, blessed, favorites of God and forget that the only reason we have any standing before him at all is because he poured his grace and favor out on us and we didn't deserve it in the first place. Because when you forget that, you're not gonna tell anyone else. 
And should we never forget, just as Israel did forget, that we've, our, his favor's been poured on us, that we might share his grace with others. That's the only reason we're still here. That's why God says, or Jesus himself, go therefore to where? All nations, not just Israel, not just America, all nations, making disciples, teaching them to obey, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we understand his grace, we will be way more quick to share his grace and mercy with others. But when you start thinking you're the favorite, well, you're just waiting on everyone else to get their act together so that they deserve what you got. And this is what Israel did. This is what Israel was all about for a really long time. So don't fall into the trap to think that God just changed his program. Didn't happen. Israel was always supposed to be a blessing to the Gentiles. They should have constantly been drawing the Gentile people in to learn who God is and to learn of God's grace, and they failed in that. And now, finally, here's the church doing what it's supposed to do, fellowshipping Jew and Gentile alike, sharing the gospel with one another, meals together, exactly what God decided. And how does Peter Having just fought this battle, this exact battle, even over meals, how does he go from that back to this old, broken, legalistic, snobbish way of thinking? Of all people on earth, how does Peter do this? How does he leave this gospel truth and go to that broken, old school way of thinking? Well, take a look at verse 13 in Galatians 2. It says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Okay, so two things I want us to note about this, okay? And lean in on this. Two things I want us to note. Number one is this. Nominal, hypocritical Christianity is highly contagious. Do you see what's happening here? It wasn't just Peter, it spread. It got Barnabas, it got the church. Next thing you know, the entire church is divided. This kind of hypocritical Christianity is contagious. Now now listen here, I believe with all my heart that every single person in this room, myself included, we all have hypocrisy in our hearts. Every one of us. Even you that is thinking, not me, yeah. But because look, We all have areas in our life where the confessions that we believe in according to scripture and the way that our life is actually playing out don't always match up perfectly, do we not? That's what that means. Hypocrisy means you're playing a part. You're you're claiming one thing and doing something different. You're not really who you are supposed to be. And that's what that really means. Hypocrisy doesn't just mean I'm sinning, but I'm gonna point my finger at other people that are sinning as well. It, it just means in general that our walk doesn't line up with our beliefs. And there's, it, there's no one in here that's nailing that, right? If you're here and you're not nailing this, you should come teach for me like now. Come on up. All right, that's settled. So there's nobody, right? I mean, there's no one. All of us have areas in our hearts where our walk doesn't line up. And, and listen, who you choose to spend all of your time with and invest your heart and allow to speak regularly into your life will determine who you're going to become. And so so if you choose 
to hang out with Christians or claimed Christians who have no real desire to actually grow in the grace and mercy of Jesus in any way. They're not passionate about worshiping or about spreading the gospel or about encouraging you with the word of God. They live kind of in, as we referred to last week, that functional atheism, meaning that they believe in God, but they don't live in such a way that God makes any tangible difference in their life from day to day. If you choose to surround yourself with those kind of people and allow those to be the only people that speak into your life with any regularity or authority, then it won't be long before, before you're going to be just like them. It's the truth. And, and vice versa. If you surround yourself with people that are ferocious worshipers, who, who live to take the word and to speak into other people's lives, to pray their faith in Jesus affects everything they do in life. If you surround yourself with them, you wait and see. It won't take long. There will be a fire in your soul that hasn't been there before. And look, this is just a biblical truth. Because even in 2 Corinthians 3.18, with regarding how we grow more and more like Christ, what does it say? As you behold him, you become like him. So the more we focus, the more we're pouring into, the more we're surrounded by him, this is what happens in our life. And can I add something else in there too, really quick, just as a way of encouragement? It's another one of those parentheses here. Doesn't it encourage us a little bit to know that Peter and Barnabas are wrestling with this? I mean, think about it. This is Peter and Barnabas, and they're struggling with inconsistencies in their walk with God. If it can happen to them, it can happen to us. And, and to understand that, that should give us some sort of like, <sighs> because what tends to happen is we come to church and play the role. We play the hypocrite in the sense that our history as a church in this particular culture is more like we come in and we fake it. We don't really get real about a lot of the things that are going on in our lives. We don't share a lot of struggles, especially if we're afraid it might cause embarrassment or things like that. And so what ends up happening is you come to church aware of your own weaknesses and failures, but not aware of anyone else's. And so when you're in church, you think it's just you. And you look around and you're like... Look at these people worshiping, and man, she's crying in worship. I could never do that. And that guy's quoting scripture left and right, and what is wrong with me? But in reality, listen, it's all of us. Me, it's all of us. Man, there are days when I am lights out, like preaching the gospel to myself and others, and condemnation can come my way, and it doesn't even touch me because I'm like, I don't even care, man. Jesus loves me. What do I care about what this guy thinks or what this thing thinks? I have the grace of Jesus and I feel untouchable because I'm so enveloped in his gospel mercy. But then there's other days when I feel like, man, if people knew who I was, I couldn't pastor this church. Days when in my heart I find that same old desire to measure up that I want to measure up and I want to look like I measure up and I want other people to notice that I measure up. That old religious way of living that brings control back into my hands, which can be comforting at times, rather than depending on the mercy of Jesus for my identity. And if I'm not careful, you know how I get that? You know how we get that? We start that comparison game. Well, I'm doing better than that guy. And I'm doing better than that guy. And, and he's addicted to that. I'm doing better than that. And... If I want to keep feeling this way and I want others to think this way about me, then I better hide these things I'm struggling with because if they know about that, they won't think I'm nailing it the way I really want to. 
And you see the path that you go down? That drawback to performance-driven Christianity is strong and so easy to fall into. So easy to fall into. There's, this room is full of nothing but hypocrites in that vein. Because we all struggle with inconsistencies in our walk. And when we see this, when we understand this stuff, when we see that Paul and Barnabas wrestled with it too, that should bring encouragement to our hearts. That, okay, yeah, they fell into that comparison game and they were segregating from others and they were thinking they were better. That's what happened in Galatia. That's what happened in Paul. That's what happened in Barnabas. That's what happens in Heritage. That's what happens in me. This is a normal part of the struggle of people who have been saved by grace, but we are not yet perfected and sin removed from us. And so there is a tension that exists between the sinfulness of our heart and the holiness of God's word, and some days are better than others. That's why we need the grace and mercy of God to sustain us, because we can't do this on our own. Now, in saying that, that should bring a certain amount of just relief, I think, but in no way do I say that to you in such a way that it should make you feel that it's okay to stay in your inconsistencies. Because some will do that. Let's get together with some people and let's talk about the things we suffer, struggle with. You struggle with porn, I struggle with porn, you struggle with porn too. And then all of a sudden it becomes license for you to continue to struggle in porn because you're focusing on the comparison game instead of God's holy word and Jesus' desire for you and the gospel itself. So there's a difference between understanding and finding relief in that performance-driven anxiety with one another or understanding that God wants to change us. And we don't use the struggles of others as license to continue to struggle ourselves. And so if the first thing that we need to understand, the, the first thing we see is that going back to Galatians 2, that hypocrisy is contagious and that we all deal with it. We all deal with these kind of inconsistencies in our walk. Then the second thing we need to understand is what to do with it. What do we do about that then? And Peter's life itself shows us exactly, it, Peter's life is a textbook example of how we deal with these inconsistencies in our life. Because think about Peter for just a minute. When Peter has his eyes on Jesus, beast mode, right? I mean, he's a monster. Sorry, Seattle fans, is it too soon? <laughs> Just run the ball! <laughs> sorry. Ugh. I, I'll tell you what, I was feeling a little better than Pete Carroll at that point, man. Just what's wrong with this moron? But anyway, I'm sorry, sorry. Anyway, when Peter's eyes are on Jesus, he's just knocking it out of the park. And the moment his eyes come off of Jesus, he's a buffoon. I mean, they're in the boat. There's a storm. Here comes Jesus walking on the water, and everyone is terrified, scared to death. And what does Peter say? Hey, call me so I can do that. I guarantee you, you wouldn't do that. We, I, I don't even know that it, it wouldn't even occur to me to do that. I'd be like, that's just a Jesus thing. That ain't got nothing to do with me. And here's Peter. Call me out there. I want to do that too. And he's doing it. He's walking on the stormy seas as his eyes are on Jesus. But the scripture is very clear to point out that the moment he takes his eyes off Jesus and looks at the storm and looks at the water, he begins to sink and he has to have Jesus save him. That means something. 
Peter, when he's with Jesus at Gethsemane, there's a whole army coming to arrest him, and here's the fisherman Peter whipping out a sword, chopping off ears. He's ready to take them all on for Jesus. An hour later, Jesus is in the trial. He's separated from him. He's in a courtyard. He can't even stand up against one little girl who says, aren't you a follower of Jesus? Bleepity bleep, no. Three times. Denies Jesus. Even think about the interaction that Jesus and Peter have after the resurrection and before Jesus goes into heaven. Another three times thing. Jesus says to Peter, hey, Peter, do you love me? And he uses the word agape, unconditional love. Do you love me? Peter goes, yeah, I love you. But he uses the word phileo, which is like boys, brothers. I got your back, Jesus. We're tight. Peter do you agape love me? Jesus, I, I just told you, man. I phileo love you, man. We're boys. I got your back. We're close. Yes. Peter, do you agape me? He's awkward. Lord, I, I phileo you. I, love, I brotherly love for you. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, there is a time coming when you're going to be taken somewhere that you don't want to go, and that phileo brotherly, I got your back where boys love is not going to be enough to carry you through that. And what does Peter say in response? Uh, well, what about John? Right back into the comparison game. Right back into that comparison game with one another. And Jesus tells him, he says, so what? If John should stay alive until the day that I return, what is that to you? Peter, this is not about that. You have stuff coming. You have stuff in your life, and I'm your personal Savior. Peter, do you love me? It's not about John. But man, we so quickly slip right back into that same stupid comparison game, just like Peter, just like Barnabas, just like Antioch, just like Heritage, just like you and me. The moment we take our eyes off of Jesus and we start looking at the people around us or the difficulties we're going through in life, we're going to start stumbling and we're going to start slipping and we're going to forget the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're going to stop showing grace to one another. We're going to fail just like them. It happened to Peter and Barnabas. It can certainly happen here, right? So what do we do about it? Well, the Bible makes these continual pleas to us over and over and over and it says what? Fix your eyes on Jesus. In, in fact, Hebrews 12, 2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and finisher, perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the founder, in other words, the one who saved you, and the perfecter, the finisher, the one who's going to sustain you of our faith. Because this is what we have to continue to remember. Sometimes we tend to think Jesus saved us and got us in. Now the effort, it falls on our shoulders. And we've got to start nailing it now. We've got to prove that we were worthy of being saved. Or we've got to prove that we're Christian to the other people around us. And we get into this sort of comparison game all along. When the Bible makes it really clear, the work is God's to start. The work is God's to finish. We need to stop worrying about everybody else around us all the time. And actually look to the one who promises to complete the work in our hearts. And when we do that, you will find peace and freedom and joy. But when you keep looking around at everybody else, you're going to stumble and you're going to sink and you're going to continually find yourself in these situations just like Peter where you're drowning, calling out, save me. We got to get off of that. 
And we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. The Bible even says that we are to abide in Jesus, in Jesus' famous teaching, the vine and the branches. And what is it that Jesus says? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And then Paul himself says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So think how stupid it is that we in the church play that comparison game with our brothers and sisters all around us and fall into that same sort of hypocrisy. It's stupid because it's Jesus who promises to do the work anyway. But we do it because we keep going back to the diagnostic. We keep going back to the law. We keep going to that old, broken, run-down way of thinking that has no power to sustain us, change us, or save us. And we take our eyes off Jesus and the truth of the gospel. We need to set our eyes on Jesus new every single day. You need to meditate on the gospel. You need to know the gospel so well that you can preach it. And listen, I'm not just talking about other people out there. You need to preach the gospel to yourself all the time. So when that stuff comes at you, comparisons, you can go, I don't have to compare myself to him. My worth isn't based on me or him or anywhere else. I get my approval and worth from Jesus, and I'm going to put my eyes on him again. You need to be able to do that. Because if you cannot turn and affix your eyes on Jesus again, you're going to stumble. You need to meditate on Jesus and his word. You need to devote yourself. You need to surround yourself with other believers who do the same. You need to sit under teaching that is drawing you back to Jesus. And finally, you need men like Paul who are bold and courageous but loving and humble and will come to your face when they see that your life is out of line with the scripture and say, dude, come on now. Because look what Paul says, the last verse. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul sees Peter's folly. Paul sees Peter has taken his eyes off the gospel. He's gone back to that old way of living. And Paul gets in his face and says, what are you doing? Peter, you grew up with the law. There's never been a day that you weren't learning the law. You were a Jewish boy from forever. I mean, you've grown up in all this, and you couldn't pull it off. You know you fail. So why in the world are you turning around and looking at this other group of people, many of which who are just now even becoming aware there is a law, and expecting them to do what you couldn't do yourself? Peter, you have fallen away from the truth of the gospel, and you need to step up, and you need to fix this. And as as best we know, this is what happened. And the gospel was restored and unity and fellowship took place. And this is what needs to happen in the church as a whole. That we need to be in a place where we keep our eyes on the gospel. When you feel that draw, and you're going to feel that draw, every one of you, back to legalism, back to comparisons, to look down your nose at other people, you need to remind yourself of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow Jesus to pull you back where we're to be. Now, let me say one thing really fast in closing, because there could seem to be a little bit of a contradiction with what we're saying right now and the idea of the law and the gospel of grace. I told you before that, so what place does the law have in our life? I'm going to do this in four minutes, three minutes. This is what we're going to do. Paul says here in this last verse that I noticed that their conduct was out of step with the gospel. Now, is that confusing to anyone? Maybe you haven't thought through how that could be confusing, so let me muddy your water, and then we'll see if we can clarify it back up in three quick minutes. Here's what he says. 
The gospel, that this whole idea of the law that says do this, don't do this, this is how you're supposed to live, that's not the gospel. But if you believe the gospel, then you do this and you don't do this. Do you see the contradiction it seems like there? It's like, wait a minute, I thought, I thought we don't live this life that says do this, don't do this, and now you're saying, but we're, we're doing this instead of doing this because we're living out of step with the gospel, and <sighs> I get it. It's circular reasoning. The law really does apply. You're just trying to make us feel. What are you talking about, Paul? This is what you have to understand. This is what I want us to understand as believers, the role the law plays in our life. And this is important. Before you get saved, the law is the diagnostic. It says, Jeff, you're broken. You're broken. You're broken. You're broken. You need a savior. And then I put my trust in Jesus Christ, his redemptive work on the cross, and I am saved. I am forgiven. My diagnostic comes back clean forever. From that moment on, I am justified. I have been declared righteous. But from that moment on, what place does the law have? Does it no longer matter? Let's say, do not covet from the law. What does that say? Well, now the law changes. Where do not covet used to say to me, Jeff, you're a coveter, and you're not supposed to, and you shouldn't, but you're failing. But now it's different. What does the Bible say about the law? It says that God's word is a light, a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. And so this is what this means. The law for the believer is not condemning you, it's wooing you. And what I mean is this. As we go through life completely surrounded by darkness, God's word becomes this light, think flashlight, this lamp to our feet. It allows us through the wisdom of scripture to navigate situations as we walk through the darkness of the world around us. Why? Because it's drawing us into, remember it says it's a lamp unto my feet and then what? A light unto my path. That word, think sunshine. So the idea is the lamp is leading us into the light. And so what the law does for us now as believers is it's wooing you. And what it's saying is this, Jeff, don't covet, man. There, there's greater joy over here. It's not condemning me. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But it's wooing me. Jeff, don't fall prey to that. Don't fall prey to the comparison game with your neighbors. I have greater joy for here. Trust me. Trust the gospel and come. And sometimes we're going to stumble because we turned our flashlight off. And we fall, but there's no condemnation. He gets us back up and then says, come on, Jeff, there's joy here. I mean, think of it this way. Apply it to our specific situation in this text. Where do you think Peter had greater joy? Living according to his convictions, to what he knew was true, and having fellowship with these guys like he had done for years? Or over here? playing the role of hypocrite, pretending to be something that he's not, chasing the approval of people who, frankly, he doesn't even agree with anyway. Which do you think gave him more joy? Because for those of us that have lived significant seasons in this life, this time over here where you're trying to chase joy and approval from other people, let's just be honest, it's exhausting. Isn't it? It's exhausting. And so God would say, no, my word is given to you now to draw you into joy, not condemnation. And Peter, you're feeling condemnation. It even says in verse 11, Peter stood condemned because he was back in that old way of living and God wants to woo us to a greater way of life, to seek Jesus, to behold him in his word, to spend time with him, to meditate on him, to cling to him, to abide in him because there is joy. I'm not talking about fleeting happiness. I'm talking about joy. 
I'm not talking about Taco Bell burrito. I'm talking about that meal you had on that vacation that you still talk about. I'm talking about joy. And so for us, as we close here, Sam's going to come up and close us in a song. For some of you here today, you're still in that place where the law is bringing you condemnation. You've never put your faith in Jesus. You either chase pleasures in life or you've trusted religious activity and church involvement as evidence to the fact that God loves me because I do these things. So you have church activity, but you have no relationship with Jesus. So the law is coming to you as a diagnostic to say, it's not enough. And you need to put your faith in the work of Jesus Christ and repent from your sins, but repent even from yourself. Turn to Jesus and put your faith in him. And for some, you're in this place and you've put your faith in him, but you're still stuck in that old way of living, either still caught up in sins that are robbing you of joy, even though God's word is wooing you, or you're caught up in that hypocritical comparison game because you're seeking approval from men and you're seeking approval in your own heart and rationale for why God would love you instead of going to Jesus with those things. And so you're not at peace with your brothers and sisters. You deal with animosity and jealousy and hatred, much of which you keep secret. And you don't have grace for one another. When you hear about the things other people get caught up in, it makes you feel better about yourself instead of sympathetic for the things they're dealing with. Then you need to know that God's word is wooing you to a greater joy to stop comparing yourself with everyone else and to put your eyes again on him and to just get rid of the pride again. So there's gonna be some men and women, huddle leaders, elders are gonna be available in the back of the sanctuary as we close in the song and as service ends. Come receive prayer. The scriptures say that as you confess your sins one to another, he is able and just to forgive you. So if your heart has been pricked, do not miss out on this opportunity to go and cling again to the balm of Gilead, the lion of the tribe of Judah, our salvation, Jesus Christ, and to have fellowship with your brothers that they might bring you back to the realities of the gospel. Amen? Will you stand with me and let's sing. Come thou fount Every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy Never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Sing that again Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious song Sung by flaming songs above Praise the mountain fixed upon him, mounts of thy redeeming love. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind
can seal it, seal it for thy courts above. We're going to sing this last verse one last time. I think I've said this before. I think this is my favorite hymn of all of them. And it's for one reason. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That is the testimony of every single person in this room. That is why we don't just need the gospel to save us, but we need the grace of Jesus to bind us to him daily. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily because we are prone to wander. Peter was, Barnabas was, we are. But oh to grace, how great a debtor. Praise God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. The condemnation we feel, it comes from our own heart. It does not come from God. And so the more we put our eyes on him, the closer we affix ourselves to him, the greater joy we're going to feel. Amen. God bless you. I love you. I pray that we have a great week in Heritage. I pray these words will sink in and that the culture of this church will be different. That no comparison game, no faking this stupid religious, I've got it, you don't. May we be the kind of place when people come in, they go, something's different here and my heart is starved for this kind of fellowship. Let's sing this one more time.